I'm going to read from just one uh, little section. And this is a period of time of uh, the English Reformation when the Bible is making its way. And uh, in 1539, Richard Boucher was a parish clerk of Hastings. And he was so disturbed by the reading of 1 Corinthians 9.5, a reference to Peter and other apostles having wives. You know that in uh, Roman Catholicism, the, the priests couldn't take wives. Um, and so he was so disturbed that the, that the Bible said that Peter, supposedly the first pope, was married. Here's, here was his response. Um, he wanted the New Testament burned as heresy. <laughs> so here's, here's a leader of the church who wants the New Testament burned because it's a heretical document. That's the era in which some of the things I'm about to read to you um, happen. So he defended himself by writing that compulsory clerical celibacy showed that the Bible was pernicious and heretical. That's kind of what we talked about last week under canonicity. Where is the authority? Is the authority in the church or is the authority in the scriptures? Clearly in medieval England the authority was seen to be in the church. And if the church said priests can't get married, but the Bible said that Peter was married, the Bible's wrong. Right? That was the era of, uh, of time in which the Reformation went through England. So I'll read you just a couple of stories. Rollins White was a Cardiff fisherman burned in 1555. He was, and by burned, I, I don't mean like he touched his hand on a hot stove. It meant they set him on fire until he was dead as punishment for believing the gospel. He was burned in 1555. He was illiterate, but in Edward VI's reign, he yearned to study the Bible. He sent one of his children to school to learn to read English. That was an indication that his native tongue was Welsh. The boy would read a portion of the Bible to his father every night after supper. White would commit this to memory so successfully that as John Fox reports, when someone made a scripture reference, he could cite the book, the leaf, and the very sentence. Here's another guy, John Mondrell. He was burned in Salisbury under Bloody Mary's reign. He carried a Tyndale New Testament everywhere, though he could not read. And when he met anyone that could read, his book was always ready. He would recite by heart most places of the New Testament. Another one, Joan Waste was a blind woman in Derby who earned her living making hose and sleeves. She saved her money, and though she could not read, she bought a New Testament, and she had it read to her a chapter at a time. This she memorized so that she could recite many chapters of the New Testament without the book. She was burned in 1558. Mrs. Prest, burned in Exeter, also in 1558, was illiterate, but because Sir Walter Raleigh's mother... Uh, but she caused Sir Walter Raleigh's mother to comment that Mrs. Prest's scripture knowledge was even greater than hers, though she could not read. And this book is just filled with story after story after story after story of the progress of the Bible in the English language. And these things put us to shame. <laughs> Why don't I read my Bible? Um, I have 37 Bibles collecting dust on the shelf. Can I just take one down and enjoy this immense treasure? Um, any rate, I commend that book to you. <clears throat> it, uh, it'll take a few years to, uh, to get through. What are we covering this morning? Um, we, we've covered the importance of a right bibliology. Uh, we've covered the doctrine of inspiration. How was the Bible written? Uh, we've covered the, <clears throat> doc, or the, uh, uh, the canonization of Scripture. 
That is, how did we come to have 66 books in our Bible? And are they the right ones? That was last week. And this morning, we're discussing preservation of Scripture. How has the Bible been preserved down to our day so that we know we are actually reading the Word of God? Uh, That's what we want to cover. So we'll begin again uh, with our little experiment Start with that stack. We want that one to go out for sure. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Eric. All right, you've been helping me with something I've wanted to do for a long time, which is uh, a test case for textual criticism. Uh, We get to see the results of this next week. So faithfully for four weeks, you've been acting as scribes. That is, you've been taking a paragraph and attempting to faithfully reproduce that paragraph. In week one, you didn't really know what you were doing. You were just told to copy something down. And we got some really remarkable results. Uh, As the weeks have gone by, you've become better scribes. You've sort of caught on to the exercise, and some of you are very carefully copying. This week in grading your papers, uh, I think I had some 35 exact replicas out of 150 people. That's that's pretty good. 138 people, I think, this week. Um, Week one... Only one person got it right. So you should feel good about yourselves. You're, you're improving as scribes. We're going to talk about some of the practices of ancient scribes whose job it was as a life occupation to copy scriptural manuscripts. Remember the Gutenberg press, the printing press, uh, was invented in 1450. Uh, we didn't have Xerox machines, ditto machines. Anybody remember ditto machines? Oh man, ditto machines were great. Smell after those things came right off the roller. At any rate, um, we didn't have any of those things. Uh, and so copies of scripture had to be done by hand at, at great expense and uh, great laborious effort. So um, when your sheet comes to you, you don't have to wait for my on your mark set go. If you've already got yours, you can start copying. Uh, this will be timed, but uh, we'll give you a little extra time this morning for this last one. Uh, I'm going to talk. It might be distracting. You might write down some of the words I'm saying instead of some of the words you're seeing. That's okay. It's not really okay if you were copying Scripture. But since this paragraph is not Scripture, um, you're just helping my little experiment. We're going to talk today about the Masoretes. This was a group of 7th to 11th century A.D. Scripture copyists uh, whose job it was every day to take a leaf of Scripture Look at one page, start with a blank one, and copy it by hand. And eventually these would be put together in books, uh, folios, um, and distributed for use in churches. And, and the Masoretes were, were really um, fantastic scribes. They were dealing specifically with the Old Testament texts. And, and they were committed to uh, faithfully transcribing the Hebrew in a period of time when the Hebrew was not well known. Uh, the, the Hebrew language was being lost. And if you, if you take a Hebrew word, uh, originally it, it did not have vowels in it. You would have a Hebrew word, say, with three consonants. Um, and, and then you would fill in the sounds of what those consonants would be based on the context of what you were trying to say. So if you had a word like cat... And, and, and maybe you spelled it with a C and a T or a K and a T. You had the K sound and the T sound. 
You wouldn't know from Hebrew whether that's spelled cat, cut, kit, caught. Uh, You could have any number of those things. And as people started to lose their ability to speak and read Hebrew and lose their vocabulary, the Masoretes came along and they added dots and dashes and all these little symbols to indicate, is that an O, a long O, a long A? What kind of vowel is that? And so the Masoretes did a lot of things to preserve the text. But some really interesting things the Masoretes did was they would count letters. I don't know if any of you scribes in our little exercise have counted how many letters are in this paragraph you just received. The Masoretes, for instance, would know um, the, the middle letter of the book of Isaiah. What Hebrew letter is the very middle of Isaiah? They would know the middle letter of the book of Genesis. They would know the middle letter of whatever it is they were working on. They would know the middle letter of a line. They would know the middle letter of a section. And, and they did these kinds of things to keep track of, am I copying this correctly? If the middle letter's off, I made an error somewhere. And because they highly valued the scriptures, um, they would start over, get a new leaf. One of the things that would happen because they very highly valued the scriptures is, is a lot of times copyists wouldn't destroy the, the copy that they made a mistake on. Because, oh man, I'm dealing with God's word. I, I can't just burn it or throw it away. They would ceremonially bury them. So that to, to give honor, even though it was a, a mistake, I, I, I don't want to be dishonoring to this. So uh, they would make their new one. It would go in the folio, but the old one would get buried. And, and we found a lot of these buried copyist mistakes. So we get to see what scribes did, what they were like. We begin to learn some of the things that I've learned about each one of you. What kind of a scribe are you? Are you a scribe that likes to take um, font that you're looking at and turn it into all caps? I know who you are. Are you the type of scribe, for instance, that likes to change spellings to accommodate your own culture? Most of you did not realize in the very first iteration that the word behaviors was spelled O-U-R-S. Some of you were good, faithful scribes and put the U in there. Most of you are Americans and spelled behaviors the American way because that's the way you think. I, I learned something about you as scribes. When I go back to look at a bunch of bad manuscripts, like the ones you turned in the first week, (laughs) I can start to discover, well, it is an American tendency to take out the U of the British spelling. Um, I did happen to know a couple people that lived outside of the United States that kept the U. Oh, that's interesting. Some of you are just very faithful scribes and kept it anyway. But the, we get to learn something about scribes and their behaviors in the way they copied manuscripts. Uh, some of the other things that the Masoretes did is they would, rec- they would know that the Hebrew letter Aleph, or A, the first letter of the alphabet, occurred 42,377 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. I don't know whose job it is to count that and make sure they got it right. <laughs> but you begin to appreciate the care that they took in copying. So if right now while I'm talking, you've counted out the letters in the script and then you've counted yours to make sure that you did it right, good for you, you're a good scribe. If, for instance, you counted how many T's are in that paragraph and then reproduced that and made sure you got it right, good for you, you're a good scribe. 
Okay? So, anyway, you're getting better each week. Uh, next week, what we get to do is sort of look at the telephone game that we played over the last few weeks. What did we start with? Um, and then what did we end up with in a fifth generation? Uh, what, what kinds of paragraphs emerge after five weeks of trying to faithfully copy them? And then we're going to reconstruct the original from the fifth generation manuscripts. And I think what this is going to do is help you understand just a little bit of a window into what our topic is next week, which is textual criticism. The science of recovering the originals, even though we don't physically possess them. Okay, so that's what we're doing next week. Have I given you enough time to copy? Anybody need more time? A couple people in the back need a little more time. All right, uh, helpers, let's start at the front and start collecting and, uh, and make our way back. All right, what are we talking about this morning? We are talking about the preservation of Scripture. And we'll begin with a very common question. Was the Scripture miraculously preserved? In other words, did, did God do some supernatural event to make sure that we had the right text to work from? Uh, and there are a number of groups that believe this, but the most prominent group that would hold to a miraculous view of preservation would be the King James-only group. I don't know if you've ever interacted with a King James only. Maybe you are a King James only individual here this morning. Um, but the thought is the King James Bible is faithful to the originals. And it's faithful to the originals because of the supernatural intervention of God by the Holy Spirit to re-inspire the English text of the 1611 King James because God wanted his word preserved and he stepped into human history, into church history, and did so miraculously. Okay, that is the view of the supernatural view of preservation amongst King James-only adherents. Uh, some King James-only adherents don't believe in supernatural preservation. They just really strongly believe that anything other than the King James is a compromise from the best texts. Um, and the argument is often made that uh, the, the other English versions have compromised on things like the deity of Christ. For instance, if a passage in the King James says, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, but NIV, NASB, ESV, HCJB, ABCDEFG, all the other versions say, only say the Lord, and they've left out Jesus Christ. Well, clearly they're compromising. But something we discover about um, manuscript copyists throughout church history is it was much more likely for them to add the words Jesus Christ after the Lord than to take them away. That additions to a text, especially with theological names, was a very common manuscript error. And so it's actually not a compromise to remove the, title, the name Jesus and the title Christ from the phrase Lord Jesus Christ from the King James Bible when you publish the NASB because the NASB is working hard to conform to the original Greek text. The King James Bible is 1,600 years removed, or 1,500 and a half years removed, from the original manuscripts. And it's gone through translation and copyists. And so um, the, the idea is, in 1611, to correct all of that, God stepped in supernaturally. Let me give you just a couple of verses. Psalm 119.89 is often used to demonstrate this. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. 
That is, God's word is inviolable. God supernaturally preserves it, is the point that is made. Matthew 24, 35 is used. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And, and these are often used as texts to defend a supernatural preservation view. The problem with that is, what, what about 16.10? Right before the translation of the King James text. Or, or what about the, the, um, the acceptance of what is called the textus receptus, the, the, the text family behind the 1611 King James Bible? Uh, no account is given to, well, was God caring for his word for the first 1,500 years of church history? Um, and, and that argument is, is not remembered. A third argument that's critical is if you understand the history of the English Bible and you understand the work that William Tyndale did. Uh, Tyndale, by the way, was the first to uh, bring to English language the Greek and Hebrew texts. He was the first to, to, to get into English the Bible from the original languages. Uh, some of the Bible had been done from Latin, um, uh, John Wycliffe's Bible was a Latin to English translation, but um, Tyndale's was the first from Greek and Hebrew. And while it wasn't totally finished in his lifetime, he was persecuted, uh, eventually betrayed and killed, and uh, um, uh, martyred for his attempt to put the Bible in the English tongue. Eighty-some percent of the King James 1611 translation is Tyndale's work. Eighty. More than 80% of the King James Bible is Tyndale's work. So far from believing uh, that, that something supernatural or miraculous happened in 1611 with the translators, um, we, we would hold to providential preservation. That is, God has providentially kept his word for his people. And, and that's what we're going to unfold today is the providential view of preservation. Um, if you would like more information about the King James-only debate. Uh, I would commend to you James White's book on the subject. It is called The King James-Only Controversy. Uh, there are half a dozen really good books on this topic, um, but my favorite on it is, is James White. So that's in your resource list at the bottom of your notes this morning. Um, if you're interacting with somebody who believes anything other than King James is a compromise, this would be a good resource just to uh, tuck under your belt. It's important to affirm, by the way, that the King James English Bible is a great Bible. <laughs> it is a fantastic Bible. In fact, the, the, the Tyndale, King James, Geneva line of English Bibles is the vehicle by which the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth since the English Reformation. And, and, and the world truly has benefited from these. So the idea is not King James is a lame Bible. It's a great Bible. Um, really one of, the, one of the best in church history. But the idea that it is miraculously preserved and is the only Bible that actually is the Word of God um, doesn't hold up. So <clears throat> let's talk about uh, what we do believe, which is providential preservation. How has God kept uh, His Word preserved for us? And I'll just give you <clears throat> some thoughts on the biblical doctrine of preservation. There is debate for, for people who don't hold a, a supernatural preservation view. There are some, like Daniel Wallace, who, whose work I love and depend on. Uh, Daniel Wallace doesn't believe in a biblical doctrine of preservation. He sees it as a historical observation. In other words, we have seen through church history that God has faithfully preserved his word. 
And he's done that through uh, preachers, he's done that through teachers and scholars and textual critics who have worked hard to maintain the integrity of God's word. Uh, Dan Wallace would hold to a more of a historical and observational view of preservation rather than a biblical doctrine of preservation. However, um, we, would, we would contend, I would contend, that there is actually a biblical doctrine of preservation. And, and we would think of it in two categories. God has a role in preserving his word, and man has a role in preserving his word. Now, let's look at the biblical witness to the doctrine of preservation. First of all, from God's perspective, we read Psalm 119.89 a few moments ago, but I'll say it again. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. I don't believe that's a good defense for the 1611 King James, but it is a great defense for the doctrine that God has settled his word in heaven. He knows what it is. He knows what it is. It doesn't change in his mind. Uh, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. And Jesus says of his own words, my words will not pass away. In other words, the words of God and the words of Christ in particular in Matthew 24 transcend human history or any destructive power, any antagonism by man or neglect by man of the word of God. God's word transcends all of that. <clears throat> First Peter 1 Peter 1.23, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. What is that seed? The living and enduring word of God. God's word is not threatened by whether or not human, humanity is antagonistic to it or neglectful about it. God's word stands. 1 Peter 1.25, the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which has been preached to you. So that's God's side of the doctrine of preservation. He preserves it. He has preserved it. He's preserved it flawlessly. He knows what his word is and it doesn't change in heaven. Now, let's think about our responsibility uh, in preservation of God's word. And, and I believe we can build a doctrine of human responsibility related to the preservation of Scripture. Think about Deuteronomy 4.2. Here's a command from God in the giving of Mosaic law through Moses. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God which I command you. And we often think about Deuteronomy 4.2 and all the other verses we'll look at in this list in terms of canonization. In other words, God is allowed to write scripture, but nobody else is. Don't go add chapters to your Bible. Don't Thomas Jefferson your Bible, cut things out wherever you want. You don't get to pick and choose what God says. God wrote his word. Um, and if God reveals himself in progressive revelation, he alone does that. And he does it the way he's done it, which is the Holy Spirit carrying along men who write without error the very words of God. Right? We believe in dual authorship. And when Paul is writing the New Testament, who's writing that? God's writing that by the Holy Spirit through Paul to write God's word. But no man of his own will is able to just add words to Scripture. In fact, all the warnings and judgments of God are against that kind of thing. We think of Deuteronomy 4.2 in terms of canonization and the writing of Scripture, but there's another implication for us that's really important, and it is this. Don't add and don't take away. Copyist. Manuscript copyist. Don't add and don't take away. Deuteronomy 12.32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Here's a very serious warning, an injunction against 
being careless with God's word, either hostilely removing or in in an antagonistic way adding to, or even in a careless way, reckless way, taking away from or adding to. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be found a liar. Jeremiah 26, 2. Thus says Yahweh, stand in the court of Yahweh's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in Yahweh's house. All the words that I've commanded you to speak to them, do not omit a word. Some of you scribes, and and again, the paragraph I gave you is not scripture. Do not get this confused. Um, But some of you scribes omitted not just words. For instance, I, I think some of you thought that when I said that, that, two that's in a row, you thought that one was an errant mistake and shouldn't be there. Grammatically, it's correct, but some of you removed it. You omitted it. Some of you went farther and omitted an entire line, probably because you moved your eyes down from one line to the next. Sometimes you see a repeated word, and then you see that same word farther down, and you forget to put everything in between. Your eye goes from the word to, and you see the word to when you put your eyes back on it, and then all of a sudden, your paragraph just got cut in half because you omitted things. Um, I know who you are. I know what you've done. Uh, (laughs) You've changed my words, and I don't really care. But God cares. Don't omit a word. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book. That's a pretty serious charge for being careless with God's word, or worse, being antagonistic, adding or taking away, uh, seeking to say, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord thus not saith, or removing what the Lord does thus saith. (laughs) See, the King James is good for something. All right. Um, I want to give to you uh, Dr. Barrick. Dr. Barrick's a professor at the uh, Master's Seminary, Master's University. Done a lot of work in textual criticism. He's done a lot of work in everything. Uh, I don't think there's a, a thing in life you can talk about with Dr. Barrick he's not an expert in. But he says this, The biblical doctrine of preservation of Scripture consists of two parts. God preserves his word unchanged forever in heaven. And number two, he gave his people the privilege and responsibility of preserving it on earth. That's right. That is a, a good representation of the Bible's view of preservation. God knows his word, it's settled in heaven. And his people have the privilege and responsibility of preserving it. Okay, I want to think of some examples uh, of the critical roles of divine providence and human responsibility in preservation. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 22. Second Kings 22, beginning in verse 8. I don't know who invented the insulated stainless steel coffee mug, but this coffee's still hot. I made it a long time ago. It's fantastic. All right, verse 8 of 2 Kings 22. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. 
Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house. We've delivered it into the hand of the workmen who've sought, who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh. They were in a rebuilding project. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Why? They hadn't seen the first five books of the Bible in 40 years. Undergoing a, a, a sort of a rebuilding project, a renovation project in the temple, they discover the Bible. And, and one of the things that the, the Bible says, one of the things the book of the law says, is the king of Israel is supposed to read it, the whole thing, out loud, in front of the nation. And, and here young King Josiah discovers the Bible again. Oh, we've missed this. And here you see God's providential hand in a rediscovery of the scripture, a preservation of the scriptures, and then man's responsibility, pull it out, read it, keep it, don't let that happen again. I want you to think about Jeremiah 36. You can, uh, it's in your notes, and you can refer to the whole chapter later, but it's the story of Jehoiakim. He's a bad guy. He's king of Israel at the time. And then you've got Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch, uh, his uh, sort of uh, assistant, and he's a scribe. And God gives Jeremiah direct revelation. Jeremiah is what we call a, a writing prophet. There were writing prophets and speaking prophets, and God would deliver his message through prophets. And some of the speaking prophets became writing prophets. This is true of Jeremiah. And God tells him to write these things down. Uh, the king didn't like what God's word says. And he took his knife and he just starts slicing the thing up and throws it into the fire in his winter cabin. And, and people around him said, ah, oh, that makes me nervous. Some of the people around him were like, ah, oh, whatever. And Jeremiah is told, write it again. And Baruch writes again what Jeremiah dictates. From, from the mouth of God, through his prophet Jeremiah, recreates the word of God. Do you realize... We lost the original manuscripts of that portion of Jeremiah right after they were written. And what did God do? Faithfully recreated his word for the church. Well, for God's people. But for us too. In fact, the second version uh, had more information than the first. It included a judgment against the king who tore up the word of God. Right? God takes these things seriously. I'll give you another example. This one from church history. Jerome uh, Jerome in the third century is the guy that uh, took the, the, the Bible and put it in Latin. And in Jerome's Latin translation is called the Vulgate. We get our word vulgar from, it just means common. Uh, Jerome wanted the Bible to be in the language of the common people. People weren't speaking Greek and Hebrew anymore. Uh, the, the language of the people in the Roman Empire was Latin. And, and people can't have access to the word of God if they don't know the language. Uh, do we make everybody learn Greek? Or do we put God's word in their language? Right? That's why our people are in Papua New Guinea. We don't make Papua New Guinean people learn English. Um, we do the hard work. We learn dough, and we put the Bible in the dough language. Right? Jerome was doing that for the Latin world. A thousand years later, Latin is a language nobody speaks, and now nobody can read the Bible, and the church hides the Bible under the Latin language so nobody can have access to it. And so the whole thing backfired eventually. Uh, but Jerome's project was remarkable. And one of the things Jerome did, in addition to producing the Latin Vulgate, he also uh, put out what was called the Hexapla. And the Hexapla was a, uh, a six-phased um, uh, translation 
of the Hebrew Old Testament. And, and it came from six text families, uh, several other languages that the Hebrew Old Testament had been translated into, along with several versions of the Hebrew Old Testament that uh, Jerome had access to. And Jerome created this side-by-side folio view of all six versions of a passage next to each other. This thing was thousands and thousands and thousands of pages long, and there was probably only ever one copy of the Hexapla. And it was Jerome's work at doing the very thing we'll talk about next week. He was doing textual criticism. He was looking at the various scripts, at the various versions, and he was working hard to discover which one accurately represents the original. And Jerome was doing that in the third century when he put out the Hexapla. Uh, Another example of of the human responsibility of the preservation of God's word in church history is Erasmus. Now, Erasmus was no believer, uh, probably never embraced the gospel, but he was the writing partner to Martin Luther. In fact, if you read Bondage of the Will, it's on our bookshelf out there. That is a must-read book. By the way, if you only read, I'll say seven books outside of the Bible in your Christian life. Bondage of the Will has to be one of them, right? William Carey's biography by S. Pierce, S. Pierce Carey has to be another one. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Why? That's another sermon, top seven books. But Bondage of the Will is in the, uh, up at the top of the list. You've got to read that book. It is Martin Luther writing to Erasmus and explaining to Erasmus the gospel. So you, you sort of get a flavor of Erasmus through Luther's writings. But Erasmus, even as an unbeliever, provided the church with a remarkable gift, and he provided Luther with a remarkable gift. Erasmus was uh, a Roman Catholic medieval scholar, but he was also part of the beginning of the Enlightenment era of scholarship. That is, it was the rediscovery of the ancients, of, of the Greeks, of, of the Greek philosophers, of Greek writings, of Greek art and architecture. Um, my kids take geometry at Chandler Prep. What's the, what's the book you use? Euclid. Right? They're, they're reading a geometry book that is over... How, what's the, do you know the date on Euclid? I should have looked this up. It's over 2,000 years old. Ancient Greek geometry book my kids are still using in school. But all of that learning was lost in medieval Europe. There was a reason medieval Europe just went backwards in technology, backwards in medicine, backwards in everything. Uh, we call it the Dark Ages. And, and Erasmus, a committed Catholic, was also committed to the rediscovery of all these treasures from the Greek and Roman world. And one of the treasures he pulled out was the Greek New Testament, which shed light on what the New Testament said that the Latin version obscured in, in significant areas, particularly the gospel. The whole idea of justification by faith is crystal clear in Greek, And it is muddy in Latin. It's muddy in Latin. No wonder that it was a confusing topic in medieval Europe when, when, number one, people didn't have access to the Bible. And even when they did have access, it was in Latin. And, And even when they had access in Latin, if they could read it and understand it, messed up the doctrine of justification. And so Luther gets a hold of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And for the first time, light is pouring into his soul. The gospel becomes clear and the Reformation is born. I I just made that long story real short at the end. (laughs) There's a lot more details in there. But Erasmus, by giving the Greek New Testament to Europe and to the church, uh, was a providential way that God preserved his word. And you see the human responsibility side of it. Martin Luther had to go learn Greek. 
And, and then he translated the scriptures into the German for his own people. And the preservation of the scriptures goes on through church history. You realize that today's expositor, someone who's going to make it his business to unfold the word of God, to accurately explain the word of God, one of the, the preacher's tasks is to fall in line with the preservation of God's word. One of the preacher's tasks is actually to make sure that the word that we are preaching is faithful to the original. It's one of the reasons that you, you send pastors in training to go learn Greek and Hebrew. And, and even in the process of learning Greek and Hebrew, you send them to learn the process of textual criticism to make sure they're dealing with the right Hebrew text or the right Greek text from which to preach in English. Why? Because if we're not preaching the, the word of God, what are we preaching? We've got to make sure we're doing it right that we're actually representing God's thoughts. That's where the power is. That's where life is. So let's talk for a moment about factors. We're going to talk about preservation of the Old Testament first. Let's talk about factors in the preservation of the Old Testament. First of all is a Jewish reverence for the Word of God. Jewish reverence for the Word of God. The Jews highly esteemed the Word, even if they didn't know personally the God of the Word in every generation. They had a high reverence for the written word of God. And so there is a, a, a Jewish history of being very careful with God's word and actually following the injunctions to not add and not take away, but to make faithful copies. In fact, the, the whole task of tediously copying manuscripts, think about what it would be like to uh, have as your entire profession being holed up in a room with a candle and a a quill, an ink that you have to dip, and copying manuscripts. I don't know if you uh, do any busy work, students, if your teachers assign you busy work because really they just wanna, don't want to deal with you right now, so go do 878 two plus twos. You know, uh, sorry, I don't, I don't need to undermine the authority of teachers. Scratch that, remove that from the tape. Do whatever your teachers assign and do it with joy as worship before the Lord. Man, bad illustration. I don't know if, if any of you in this room uh, take on mundane tasks from time to time. And, and, and you just sort of space out. Not really thinking about what you're doing, but I've done this enough times that, okay, the next thing. I'm going to build another widget, another widget. The last widget was the same as the first. Could you imagine being a copyist of manuscripts in a low-lit room with ink and a quill and going, well, going off to work again today. Another day, another dollar. okay. A lot of times you would have one person at the front of a room calling out a Hebrew letter and 26 people in a room writing down that Hebrew letter. Next, next letter, next letter. And of course, then they would count the letters. They would make sure they had the right number of letters. You think, man, what a dream job that, that would be, reading my Bible all day long. I, I don't know that as a scribe, you really got to pay attention to what was being said. I think it often got lost in the, the, the tediousness of the task. It was hard work, and yet they took it very, very seriously. One of the things that they did was they, they buried worn parchments. So if, if a, a manuscript of Scripture that they'd been copying or using to make other copies was starting to get worn out, uh, where too many thumbprints on it had started to make the ink fade, uh, again, they wouldn't tear it up, they wouldn't burn it. Uh, they would often roll it up and bury it uh, like a ceremonial burial 
in, in pots, and they'd cover them up with lids, and they'd store them in a closet. And, and they're never going to use them again. They're, they're too worn out to use, but, but they just get stored out of reverence. Well, time goes by. Those stores become a, a treasure trove of the discovery of old manuscripts. And, and it's part of what God has done to help preserve his word. Um, the oldest extant manuscripts that we had uh, until, until pretty recently were from 900 AD. Just think about that for a moment. You know, Christ, Christ was here roughly what year? You know, zero, sort of. <laughs> 900 years later was the oldest set of manuscripts that we had access to. Complete copies of, of God's Word. Um, from the 7th to the 11th centuries, I mentioned the Masoretes. If you've heard of the Masoretic text, you've got a group of scribes called the Masoretes. These are the guys who counted numbers of letters in books. They identified the middle letter of a book. They invented the Hebrew vowel pointings um, so that the pronunciations wouldn't be lost. Um, and, and these 900 AD texts come from the Masoretes. But in 1946, two Bedouin shepherds were tending their flock of goats by the Dead Sea. And one crawls up, uh, sees a hole in a rock. Uh, it looks like a cave he can hardly get himself into. Throws a rock in. Here's the shattering of something. Large stone pot was in there. And inside this stone pot was a rolled up scroll. And this Bedouin shepherd carried this rolled-up scroll, folded it in half, put it in his backpack. Most likely what he was carrying on that very first day of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was the great Isaiah scroll. <laughs> a treasure he was ready to part with for a few bucks. Didn't know what it was, told by everybody it was trash. Um, held on to it, eventually sold it, eventually found its way to some traders, and then it and the other scrolls with it from the Dead Sea uh, became known as the, the Qumran collection of scrolls recovered, which were older than the Masoretic texts from 900 AD. In fact, these scrolls predate Jesus. Dead Sea Scrolls are one of the most remarkable archaeological finds in human history and one of the most remarkable providential dealings of the preservation of Scripture from God's side of things, and then on the human responsibility side of things, since 1946, scholars, even to this day, are still analyzing the, the, the massive amounts of bits and fragments and pieces and then whole scrolls of text uh, from the Dead Sea Scroll findings. These scrolls were a thousand years older than anything we previously knew. And you know, there is no significant difference between the Qumran texts and the Masoretic texts of the 900s AD. Thousand years go by, and a scribe copies a text, a scribe copies a text. We've played telephone game in here for five weeks, and we have really dropped the ball. I set you guys up for failure. I know that. It was my own little experiment. But 900 years, 1,000 years, 1,100 years go by between some of these texts and the Masoretic texts that we had previously, and there is not a change <laughs> How careful were the scribes? How highly did they revere God's word? And how, much did, how hard did they work to maintain faithfulness and preservation? Their responsibility in preserving God's word. 
You know, uh, a common argument from Judaism prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was that Christians had gotten into Isaiah 53 and put Jesus all over it. You read Isaiah 53, it is clearly about Jesus. In fact, it's hard to find a text in the New Testament that more clearly describes the person and work of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Christ, is so clearly about Jesus the Messiah and all that he did to pay for our sins. And so a common Jewish argument was, yeah, well, yeah, it's been Christianized after Jesus was alive. The Christians got into, the, into, the, into our scriptures and, and, and edited them to favor their theological perspective. What did we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls? <laughs> These scrolls that predated Christ say exactly what Isaiah 53 says today. I spent too much time in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, there are other language translations uh, that the, the Old Testament was translated into. We can use those uh, to compare notes. Hey, wh- what did this look like when it went into other languages? By the way, I, I don't know who this was, but in week two of our little experiment, somebody translated the last two lines into Spanish. And then in week three, somebody translated the whole thing except for the first line into Spanish. How many of you got the mostly Spanish version today? Wow. Uh, how many of you who got the Spanish version know Spanish? Okay. <laughs> so you, you English-only Spanish copyists get a little bit of a flavor of what it's like to be a scribe trying to take Hebrew letters and translate them over faithfully. And yet, what do we have in our scriptures today? Very faithful representations. So um, let's talk about the New Testament for just a couple of minutes. Um, we don't possess the original manuscripts. They're not in the British Museum somewhere. You can't go read the first edition of Romans or anything like that. Um, by the way, just, just because of use and circulation and lots of people copying it, they would have been worn out. I think there's a second reason that we don't have original manuscripts, probably on the providential wisdom of God side of things. What if we did? What if we had the first edition of Romans or the original Isaiah? People would worship it. People do that. I mean, in medieval Christianity, people uh, bowed down and made shrines. to. If you go to Europe today, you go to cathedrals, and you see shrine after shrine of little bits and pieces of archaeological findings from everything in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and people bow down and worship them. I think God was very kind to not let that happen with his written word. Anyway, side sermon. Preservation of the New Testament. We do have papyrus from the 3rd century, um, possibly even the 2nd century. Uh, On your resource list on the back page, I wrote down a website for you at csntm.org. That is the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. It is fascinating. You You can get on that website and actually pull up actual manuscripts that we found in archaeological findings and look at them. They've all been photographed, cataloged. It tells you what it is, the history it was, who found it, who dug it up, what date it comes from, where it's housed, what museum it's in, all that kind of stuff. It's just, maybe I might be the only one that thinks it's a fascinating website. But you can get lost in there. It's just awesome. Dan Wallace, um, who is a Greek prophet at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, is the one who heads up that center. And it is just fantastic. They're always putting up new findings. They made, in fact, on their front page this week is their update of kind of the news from the last year. Some of the manuscripts they've found in the last year predate anything else we've had up to this point in the New Testament, down into the early second century. It's just staggering stuff. Um, Let me give you just a few statistics about the New Testament. The New Testament is the best attested of all ancient books. Stop right there. I I told you, we, we read the Greek philosophers. My kids are studying a geometry book from nothing 
has as many manuscripts or as much evidence or as much positive attestation to the original faithful manuscripts as the New Testament. And it's not even close. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts from which to discern the originals. Some go all the way back, again, to the 2nd and 3rd centuries. The closest uh, comparison to that is the Roman poet Virgil. He was a contemporary of the New Testament. Um, And what we have from Virgil is a few lines from the 4th century. The first manuscript that we have of Virgil is all the way in the 5th century. 500 years after he wrote. That's the closest thing we have to the original. The New Testament, we have 5,000 manuscripts closer to the original than the closest competitor has one. Does that make sense? It's just not even close in terms of how faithful um, is our New Testament text today. By the way, no major doctrine rests on some disputed text. There's not a single passage in which scholars uh, haven't found the original New Testament text meaning the, the words of the original are not represented. Um, there's probably one example in your Old Testament, uh, 1 Samuel 13.1, and it is a, the, a number is missing. If you go read 1 Samuel 13.1 in your English Bibles, there's a little mark that says, I'm not really sure what word was supposed to be there. Um, and it probably is the number 40. And the reason we know it's the number 40 is the description of how long Saul served as king before David came after Saul was rejected. And, and we wouldn't know what number to put in there from the Hebrew text because it's been lost. This is the human side of responsibility of preservation. Somebody dropped the ball somewhere along the line. But if you read Acts, the book of Acts, Acts 13.21, actually gives us the number and fills it in for us. So what, what we can surmise is that in the first century, the New Testament writers, the apostles, had access to manuscripts at that time that still had the number from 1 Samuel 13.1. All that to say, nothing's missing in your Bible. God's been kind to preserve his word. Nothing's missing. It has been faithfully preserved by his providence. And, and furthermore, it is the responsibility of us humans to continue the preservation of his word. It happens in the pulpit when, when pastors faithfully cut straight the word of God. That is, they explain what God meant by what he said from his word. And some of the work behind that that you don't see is a pastor making sure he has the right Greek or Hebrew text behind the exegesis he's doing in the original languages before he preaches in English. That's part of the pastor's role. It's also part of the church's role as a whole to provide scholars who study text criticism, which we'll talk about next week. And it's part of the the church body as a whole, every single one of you here, to value God's word and hold pastors and leaders accountable to getting it right. It's all of our responsibility. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Without it, um, how, how would we know you? How would we know your ways? Uh, what a rich treasure it is in our language. God, would you be pleased to use this church in making your word accessible in languages where it is not yet known? And we ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.